Hi everyone, welcome to the AI of Mankind show, where I share anything interesting about mankind. I'm your host for this season. My name is Andrew Liu. I've worked across four continents and 12 international cities. Also, I've worked in tech startups across a range of roles from selling products, making customer happy, figuring out fundraising, making finance tick, building teams, and developing sticky products. Apart from building startups, I've also worked in Fortune 500 companies as a chief data scientist or technologist or people leader. You can call me Jack of all trades or master of learning. I hope to make this podcast show a great learning experience for us. In each season, there is a series of interesting things where I invite guests to share their views about their life and interests. Now let the show begin. Hi everyone, allow me to introduce my guest today. Ruben is a data scientist currently at Crimson Logic. He completed his undergraduate studies in mathematics and economics at the Nanyang Technological University, NTU in short, and started his career at the DBS Bank as a data scientist and machine learning engineer. He's familiar with natural language programming, computer vision, and has dabbled in speech-to-text software. As a young professional in technology, Ruben constantly upskilled himself and is genuinely curious and enjoys learning new things. Outside of work, he does volunteering to give back to the community. During his free time, he enjoys learning or reading about economics, philosophy, sustainability, as well as watching films and TV. Let's welcome Ruben. Hey, Ruben. Hey, Ruben. Hey, welcome to this show. So tell me about yourself. How do you get from where you finished school to where you are today? All right. Thanks, Andrew. Hi, Ruben. Uh, good to be on your show. So no problem with regards to that question. I think my story begins back when I was 17. I've always been interested in computers and computer gaming. So I picked on a project on cybersecurity, defense science organization, aka DSO. So at the part of time, I was thinking that coding can't be that hard. All right, I got my first taste of programming. I could teach myself some C++ and Python. And at the time, honestly, I was not very good at it and I struggled a lot. So this led me to believe that I was not very kind of coding. And I ended up doing in economics and a couple of basic modules there had coding. So actually, I began to follow up through my peers that this struggle is normal. It's something that people don't attempt very easily. And my prior experience helped me a lot. As soon as I began to enjoy it, and I thought that it was very similar to solving puzzles, and I got a map for it. So in my second year, I participated in a hackathon that was organized by DBS. This was still in the earnings of e-payment and payment was relatively new. There's still great pay, trip pay, all those here. So my team came up with the idea of having an app do the reservation, order, and payment for you, and only one integrated platform. So let's say, good year, Astems, as a lazy customer, I want to be able to reserve a table for two, and let's say 7.30 p.m., and I didn't want one for orders, two of us. So we just pull up the app, then reserve. Okay. So what we do is we come in, sit down, eat, you know, any hassle. So after crunching some numbers and some patchy work for this, my team ended up meeting and we offered some seed money to implement our idea. So from this, I did a bit more confidence in my coding ability as well as the other pitch and share ideas because it was not just on vulnerability, 
I'm looking at other people or whatever, then what they've been looking at, what they pitch, how to present and how to pick. It's a very cool experience. Next, when I graduated, I found that I was interested in using my skills that in the applicable industry and came across a DBS SIG program. After a test and interview, I found myself placed in this institutional banking tech analytics team. From there, I had a role with data scientist slash business analyst. Then we worked as a machine learning engineer. And I actually did have a serious background. And it's, and it took away quite a lot of effort to pick up a couple of things. Then Lena, it's cute as left brain. But with some tricerys and that from senior colleagues, I quickly told me that it's the hardest ecosystem. And one of my early projects was because it began problem on free text. It was actually a mix of English and Hong Kong Chinese characters. This was back in 2018. I think I'm still relatively new with data science and I was like as resourceful as now. That's now. So both of us, we had to struggle to figure out the plus we really have. A lot of ideas. And the point of time, my background was more tradition than, than data scientists. My economics background had a strong focus on regression, and I was quite strong at that. But I did not really know much about NLP. So we ended up with all sorts of research and trial and error, and we eventually got our first success, which is a simple SVM model. And after a lot more practice and research, we started to and some the models, and have a different training process to data and big idea of accuracy. So I found myself entering this iterative process and I started to branch out in one of the other aspects of uh, with science and machine learning. And then eventually I got a project which was a new challenge, but I was already familiar with self-learning. I had agreed to move fast, quick stuff, second boxes, Facebook orders. Did I via installed different domains in ML and data science? And after close to three years, I still have to learn about much to learn about the IT world, specifically on the architectural side. And I saw an opportunity to create logic. And we said in the general under the chip architects of this as a data scientist. Tell me more about what are you doing at the position in Crimson Logic? What are the multiple hats that you are actually doing? My team at Crimson Logic is a bit smaller and a bit younger in the data journey. I have to wear multiple hats. So I have a data scientist hat or an architect hat as well as a data analyst and data engineer. So in other words, I'm actually like handling the project a lot by myself, which is, I think, very fun. I enjoy this exercise. I feel like I have a lot of ownership and control over the step. And it allows you to go and affect my architecture, which I feel is very important. It's very applicable across all sorts of software engineering, not just data in general. And I'm looking on data virtualization and dashboards, which some trees should face to analytics, and then some kind of partner automation AWS. So, one of the things that I picked up that covered equation logic was AWS, and I'm sure that the AWS is very fun. And I feel like knowing at least one cloud platform. Is very beneficial to any technologies carrier. It's given the entire for software architecture, and it will empower you in your discussions with your architect and your infra team. So whether you're in a new setting, startup, or a older company undergoing digital transformation, right? It should have an to your skill set. Each of these technological disruptions is digitized or die, and then there's still a lot more opportunities for you to help digitize if you are familiar with at least one class of architecture. And the rest can also be easily picked up. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you that these days uh, it's very useful to wear multiple hats, try all sorts of uh, different path or task of the grand end-to-end skill of deploying a machine learning or artificial intelligence system. And in your case, uh, interesting I want to ask is that the problem sets that you are building these solutions and systems on, are they solving internal organizational problems or external product-facing problems? In other for example, are you solving, let's say, HR or finance or marketing internally, or are you, let's say, let's say, in security or payment products kind of stuff? 
Which one are you really working on? Um, let's see, doing more internal stuff. I also get me to see more familiar with the company's data. I remember one of the Crimson Logic projects just two-factor authentication. That was probably many years back. So now that you say it's now in shipping, apparently the company probably pivots a lot. And with people like you, they're able to pivot faster and be more agile. Now, coming back to companies like Crimson Logic being able to pivot a lot and you being in DBS and you work with a lot of different teams, now, what are the challenges that companies face when they do digital transformation, when they deploy AI or work with data? I believe the first thing to do is to start to get a data storage solution. Mm-hmm. And I feel that it's start building a data lake. So we can't build the value of data and feel data for someone else who really needs it. Uh, that, that is, of course, it is legal from somebody else needing the data. I think Economics Magazine in 2018 says that data is the new all. And therefore, the more data we have to the next year, start training employees to be data literal. Not just have a basic understanding of data science, but also understand what the data means. Yeah, specific data means. So this applies to both tech and business. But the business side should understand how the data is structured, how data they are. And for the tech side, you should understand more on business application. Don't just think of the software of the database, what this interaction means. And from there, I think research decisions can be made after some research and consulting whatever available data they have. It's possible mixing predictions, even if they are simple. But I think the most important part is to choose metrics with care. One of the most important things I learned in economics is that people respond to incentives. They look in the system. For example, if you're running a marketing campaign and the metric is just simply the click through rate. So the team has incentives to minimize the number of emails that sent out. So they do some potential business because now there is just theme and they don't send out the those, then they're very sure of it. And then from there, they treat the, the, this, this data point can be very high. So in this case, you are actually losing revenue overall. Don't do business. You mentioned about four points. The first one is talk about the data. Don't be too late to start. Try to build the data lag so that when somebody needs the data, it's not too late. It's not like scrambling everywhere. And the second point is enabling the company to upskill their people to be data literacy. That one is so that it can be data driven. And therefore, the fourth one is choosing the right metrics because as we all economists, I'm also economically trained that people actually respond to incentive now. I want to dwell a bit further in terms of collecting the data, the process of collecting the data. Tell me more about, considering now that you have been in two companies, what is the common thing that people always get it wrong in terms of building data lake or in terms of aggregating the data from different sources? Yeah, I'm sure that building the data lake, you need to be able to scale because whether you are currently small or whether you are big, eventually you're going to get big. And normally in data, the bigger, the better. I feel that the one I right now probably be still the most, the most prevalent data technology on there for using data links in warehouses. Huh? And I believe if you do it on AWS, there's a whole array of streaming solutions for you. But I think that's kinesis for real-time data, there's link formation for actually helping you get your data into the link itself. And there's also a whole lot of other products that I need, snowmobile and snowball to actually have an import already existing data to migrate over to the server. After you build your data link, you should be able to start doing projects. And I feel that when it comes to doing projects, it's okay to start small, even if they're very simple. For example, before jumping into the data science or AI, you can start with research intelligence, dashboards, 
are an amazing and helpful tool for C-level executives to make that decision because the very summary is very concise. It's very fast. One of the challenges that most people or most companies have when they start to build the data lake is trying to figure out the different tools to piece things together. And that's where you recommended a few different software like the Snowmobile. Now, coming back to the second question I want to ask, what does data literacy mean to you and how can we train people to have data literacy? For me, data literacy means that they understand the basics of not just what the tickets are, I think that's a little bit too at once. Maybe there's basic statistics. In other words, they need to know like basic projections, basic or uh, even testing, the more common, simple stuff. They also have to be quite comfortable with data wrangling in a sense that they should be able to open up the Excel, just roughly when children for things here and there to know how to know how to use data to answer questions. That's the first part of data literacy. Understanding how data works. The second part will be to actually know your own data, which is the same. Let's say you have a product and then it's, it's hitting a database somewhere. You need to know how the database comes together and then it's just going and it's going to create this data and merge with some other interesting data that you have. How are you going to join them together? Now that you see that, you just ring me a bell when we were working together before. And in terms of data literacy, you mentioned it's really about helping people understanding how to get the data, where does the sources come from, and within that data, what does the data mean? Is it a, for example, is it a continuous data or is it a discrete data? Like continuous means like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then discrete could be, let's say, male, female, 0 is male, 1 is female. And it may seem simple to us, but maybe to the layman, anybody when they started this thing, they were trying to figure out, like, it's like when we were learning ABC back in the baby, right? Now it's like for a non-data, non-technical guy, business guys, they would have to understand, oh, the, that language have to translate to data, it means different things. So we all know that money most likely is a continuous data value and gender is a discrete or discontinuous kind of stuff. And coming back to the third point or the fourth point you mentioned about choosing the metrics you can. So there's two parts here when you think about metrics. One is getting clarity about what does that metric means and selecting metrics because I think the most famous management guru, Peter Drucker, mentioned that you can't manage if you cannot measure. Yeah, I agree with what I am saying that choose the metrics you care is like measure which care because you need to know what you're measuring and you need to know your objectives. So you have to craft it in a way that what you're measuring will fit what you're trying to maximize or minimize in this sense. Yeah. Do you have a good classic example that you always use? I think the previous example that I gave was for the TCB group now, we should just click through it. I think it is in fact a common mistake. A lot of business users I actually encountered, uh, and there's a couple of my friends have encountered as well. They are very consistent on tracking click through it. And as a data scientist, I feel like I cannot, I typically cannot go and view the, I do not want to gain the system. I do not want to purposely only send to those that I know would really be more responsive. I do want to maximize the potential revenue. So I have to go and educate them. I have to try to convince them. I will send them a data data. Hey, you shouldn't be using this click through rate. That's the success metric. We should perhaps be looking at what we can do instead if we can do our forecast of usage. If you do not do a campaign, and then after we run the campaign, we go and measure this, we go and measure the difference and see if it's statistically significant. This will be a better way to measure success. 
So you mentioned about click-through for marketers. Sometimes I personally also deal with them before and they feel that it's way too far down to the, they call it the funnel, that they can track revenue. But most of the companies should care about tracking either revenue, profits, or costs because these are the more tangible from an economic perspective that drive the entire economics operation of a company. And, but yeah, interestingly, you also mentioned about the perverseness of selecting in metrics as an incentive measure. If you think about it, if the marketers, it's easier for them to gain the click-through rate than to gain the revenue. If I know that my KPI or key performance indicator on my job that's being measured to give me bonuses on my pay, or whether should I stay in the company, is metrics that I can control. I would be more incentivized to tell you, hey, Ruben, this is the right metrics to do. What do you have to say about that? I believe in any kind of extreme, this will be called a moral hazard. So this is their incentive. So they have no choice. They have to push it. Maybe my argument makes sense to them. And they say, oh yeah, she's making sense. But oh no, I know that if uh, he does this practice, then actually my KPR can pull it out, even though it benefits the company. So I think sometimes we actually have to help the business people, these marketers. They have to go and bring it to the attention to their uh, supervisors that, hey, maybe you shouldn't be checking them on this. Maybe this is not the right way. We have to go and constantly challenge pre-existing notions of what is good metric because things will always change. So the preferred approach we will normally use to go to them, discuss through this particular metrics. I say in our case, you're talking about click-through and say, hey, maybe this click-through doesn't really uh, serve the purpose of what we're trying to do or what we're trying to solve and then getting their buy-in and change. And so out of like a hundred cases or 10 cases, like how many cases actually works and why it works or why it didn't work? Yeah. Well, I mean, we should have the number on that now, but I think my simple size is a little bit too small. Obviously, you have to keep escalating to go and convince more and more people. When you, when you try to do changes to the idea have to deal with their supervisor. And I think sometimes the supervisor does not have that kind of judgment call. So you have to keep going up us to the level. And at that point of time, it's just a bit too in difficult to push it. No choice. It has to just compromise. Uh, at the end of the day, it is not a horrible metric, but it is still somewhat decent. But it's just not the best metric, in my opinion. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode. We have come to the end of part one with Ruben. In the next episode, we will continue with Ruben on part two, which he shared with us his views on leadership, cost-benefit scalability analysis. Ruben shared an example of the concept of decreasing return to scale on the application of AI. La lastly, Ruben shared his views on the future of AI and the two schools of thought. If this is the first time you are tuning in, remember to subscribe to this show. If you have subscribed to this show and love this episode, please share it with your friends, family, and acquaintances. See you later and see you soon.